Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, with a special Friday episode of the Dispatch Podcast. I'm joined today by Steve Hayes and Jonathan Carl, ABC's Chief White House Correspondent and author of the New York Times bestseller, Front Row at the Trump Show. John has unique insights into this presidency. He first interviewed Donald Trump in the mid-1990s. We'll talk to him about being a reporter at the Trump White House and how this presidency has changed the way we think about politics. We even talk a little George Orwell. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And with that, let's dive right in. John, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. This is great. Uh, Have you been pleased with the reception of the book so far? I was petrified at the idea of having a book come out when every bookstore in America was closed. Um, And uh, I had to cancel all these carefully planned book events and, of course, the book party. Uh, But, uh, you know, all that's uh, obviously... Uh, not significant uh, when you look at all that else is going on in the country. So, uh, so I can't really feel sorry for myself. But, it, but it has been. And you sold um, out on Amazon. Sold out on Amazon. We just found out. I'll give you some breaking news. Just found out that we uh, are made the New York Times bestseller list for the third Excellent. week in a row. We and we actually went up from last week. So, um, so that's good. And, but, but what what's been gratifying to me is that people seem to. Uh, be reading the book and, um, you know, sending, you know, you get notes over various social media stuff. And I, I'm used to getting a lot of nasty stuff on places like Twitter, but I've actually gotten some, you know, some, some, some really, some really good feedback on the book. Well, I want to just start at the end of the book. Uh, you, the last chapter takes place in February of 2019. Now the epilogue takes place in October of 2019, but February 19, that's where you decide to sort of end your day-to-day narrative. How did you decide to end there? Uh, how do you decide to stop writing in the middle of the Trump show? <laughs> well, it was the biggest challenge in writing the book, even as I was writing my book proposal to try to get a, you know, a publisher. Was the, the biggest and most difficult question I faced was, where do you end this thing? Um, where do you end it? And I struggled uh, with it. I just, I just started writing, not knowing where I was going to end. And then I found myself at one point at the formal launch of his reelection campaign or real, a, a rally in Orlando. Now he, as you know, he filed for reelection on January 20th, 2017. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but I thought this is, this is like a good logical endpoint. This is like, you know, we cover him through and we end with now he's off on, you know, the, the, the second most improbable, um, you know, campaign of his life. Um, and, you know, that kind of blew by and we were into impeachment. And I was like, well, maybe I'll just end with impeachment. Maybe we can do it there. And then we'll like, and it was very hard, but I, I, I was, uh, I was given a little bit of, of, of a gift in that, uh, you know, when I, I was summoned to the Oval Office, that that's the, the scene I opened with in, in the, in the epilogue, uh, by the president primarily to, um, um, chew me out over a, uh, you know, um, over a story I had done. It was the infamous Hurricane Dorian. Uh, is it going to hit Alabama? Is it not? I, I, I mentioned a very short mention in a piece that I that ran in World News Tonight on 
Labor Day, okay? I mean, Labor Day. I, I wouldn't have been watching if I wasn't on the show. And I can't guarantee that I watched anything either before or after my piece, which ran like 10 minutes into the show. Uh, and it wasn't a story about Hurricane Dorian it was or Alabama. It was it just made a reference to the fact that he said that it was going to hit Alabama or that it might hit Alabama and that the National Weather Service had said, no, 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 it's not in the path. Um, so at, at any rate... Um, I was dealing with, uh, you know, he, he, he brings me in. It's a remarkable 45-minute meeting in, in, the, in the Oval Office. It's like a perfect place to kind of end. Because, by the way, he had said that he would do an interview with me for the book and had ultimately never happened. So here it was. <laughs> here it was. And, um, Take him however you can get him, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and in combination with that, there was... Um, this remarkable event that had happened uh, regarding the White House Charter, the White House Correspondents Association founding charter. You know, the White House Correspondents Association was founded in 1914. Um, and, and the reason why it was founded was because Woodrow Wilson was having regular press conferences and all kinds of charlatans were showing up, you know, speculators, uh, you know, con men of all different kinds and occasional journalists. And sometimes those two overlapped. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but, but Wilson, you know, was, was usually off the record and, uh, and some of the people weren't abiding by that. So he went to, uh, to, to uh, some of the regular reporters at the white house and said, look, if you guys can't control who comes in and out of this thing, I'm going to stop having them. So they formed the WHCA they they, they 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 wrote up this charter that looks a little bit like the Declaration of Independence. I mean, journalists, even back then, had a sense of self-importance. <laughs> it's this beautiful document, you know, we, the whatever, the what. Um, and it's signed by 11 correspondents, the founding correspondents of the White House Correspondents Association. And it was lost for 15 years. Uh, when, when the, when the renovations happened during the Bush years, uh, it, 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 they, the GSA moved us out for, for, for a while. We came back in, it had been on the wall, it was gone. And there'd been this frantic search to find it and it was gone. And suddenly after I became president of the White House Correspondents Association, it, it, it reemerged, uh, uh, Can't be a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I take full credit. Um, but it was found somewhere in the White House. We don't know exactly where. I got, I got, a, I got a, I got an email from um, uh, an assistant to uh, actually she, she uh, Janet Montessi. She was an assistant to Sean Spicer, and then an assistant to Sarah Sanders. And now Sarah Sanders had left, and she was going off to a different assignment. And she said, "By the way, we have something up here we think might belong to you." <laughs> And it was thick. It was in an old ratty box behind the copier uh, in, in Upper Press. It hadn't been there for long. It'd been there for like, she, she thought like maybe six months or so. Somebody had brought it and given it to Sarah Sanders and said they found it and thought she might want to put it on the wall. Of course, Sarah had thought maybe better to keep it in the box and stick it behind the copier um, and not tell us about it. But anyway, so we got that thing. And, and, and those two things just kind of, okay, now I've got kind of my, my ending. Cause I thought that was a very hopeful sign. I, we brought it to the National Archivist, uh, uh, you know, the Archivist of the United States at the National Archives. And, you know, I'm walking and he gave me this like after hours tour of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and all that. And I'm not saying 
the, the, the charter of the WHCA is like those documents. But um, just it's but, number three. Number three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bill Wright's in there somewhere, you know. But um, uh, anyway, so uh, so so that's I, I, I had kind of a way to find some closure. But but I trust me, I'm already working on the sequel. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so. We'll see. I mean, there's second. Uh, I, we've noticed in the quarantining, you've been pushed to the second row on some days. So now it's second yeah. row at the Trump show. Second row at the Trump show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, unless I like decide to take the last row at some point, just be last row. I don't. But maybe that's like the, you know, I mean, how many of these can we do? Can we do a few? You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> Does it? Let me let me jump in with that. Just a question about the spacing. I mean, obviously now people who are watching the 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 current daily coronavirus briefings are looking at this press briefing room that has journalists socially distanced and and spacing. Does it usually matter? It doesn't seem to matter when you watch these because pretty much everybody gets a question if they have a question. Some people get multiple questions, but on a typical day when the the press room is full. How advantageous is it to be right up in the front? Does it matter? Well, um, the answer is yes, but uh, but of course everything is different in the Trump era. So, including that uh, during during the uh, the, the glorious uh, Spicer era as as press secretary, when when he was holding briefings, he made it he made a a point of almost never calling on the people in the front rows. Um, and, you know, he would try to find whoever. And it was, you know, it's, I described some of these scenes. I would be in there and not get a question, which is very, I mean, it, it never happened under 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 previous press secretaries um, to be, I mean, you're right in front of him. It's hard to like, you know, he's in there for like 40 minutes and to, for him to like ignore you is it takes some skill. Um, but, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, he'd call on this guy, Andrew Feinberg, who, who um, at the time was working for uh, for Sputnik. Do you know what Sputnik yeah. is? Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 literally Russia. an organ of the yeah. of the of, of the Russian government. It's not it's not like a Russian based uh, news organ. It, it, it is owned and controlled by the Russian no, government. The name isn't ironic. And, it's actually what it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's Sputnik. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. So, but but you know, but but usually, um, you know, you you uh, you know, you, you're right there, and I'm and and it's amazing. You you've been in there. You know how small the press room is, and um. You know, it, you are really close to the president or the press secretary, whoever it is. I mean, you're like a little less than six feet, so you know, you kind of you're thinking, should I wear a mask or not uh, in this era? Um, but um, but it's strange now. I mean, Steve, fourteen people, fourteen reporters, forty nine seats, so most of the seats are empty. And usually, especially if a president is going to be in the briefing room, every seat is obviously filled, but the aisles are completely packed. The, the back is completely packed and it's, you know, there's an energy and a chaos to it. And it also makes it easy, by the way, for the even easier for the president to, um, you know, to avoid questions because he can he can call on you, cut you off and go. And there's there's 70 other people in the room with their hands up. Yeah. Um, and it's it's, it's a different environment now. When when you had an exchange the other day um, with the president where he made an accusation about reporters, um, you know, deliberately misreporting things and you sort of jumped out of your chair, maybe literally, I mean, certainly figuratively, you were unhappy with them and sort of pushed back and said, that's just not true. Um, one, obviously, one of the things that people spend the most time talking about uh, in this administration with the focus on the, the Trump versus the, the press 
um, narrative is uh, how often um, the president says things that just aren't true. I guess my question to you would be, what do you say to people who uh, respond to that by saying, yeah, you know what? He's a politician. All politicians lie. They, they say things that aren't true all the time. Does he do it more often or more aggressively or is or are they right to think that this is pretty much how all politicians operate? I, I don't think it's how all politicians operate. I mean, spinning and, uh, you know, being disingenuous, dishonest uh, is something that is, you know, politicians of all stripes do from time to time. Although I think there's a lot of good people in politics. So, um, I, I, you know, I don't think they're all a bunch of, uh, of liars. Um, but this is, this is different. He doesn't seem to care if he is called out, uh, for, uh, for, for an untruth. He doesn't seem to care. He'll, he'll say diametrically opposed things, um, in the same, sometimes in the same sentence. I mean, at, at the briefing that we just had yesterday, when it's very odd briefing, when he, you know, brought up this guy from, uh, DHS to talk about how, sunlight and humidity kills the the, the virus and and cl- sort of cleaning fluids uh you know like bleach and whatever uh and um and then after the presentation the president suggested well maybe the the sunlight we could have like these these rays go inside people's bodies somehow and i don't know if he was thinking of like a tanning bed or what he was really thinking of i'm not really sure and then uh, he said, and, and, and man, the, uh, you know, the cleaning fluids, that, that, that's incredible. It could be, maybe that could be, maybe, maybe even injected, uh, in, in, and, and would kill the virus. And I, like, so I, um, asked the guy from the poor guy from DHS, uh, you're not and the president suggested, asked him if he would test that, these propositions yeah. and see what they would, yeah. if they would work. So I asked the guy, I was like, are you, now we, you're not going to test, you're not going to be injecting bleach into people, are you? Um, sir? <laughs> I mean, that's not a, and, um, and the president stepped forward. He said, well, no, no, we're not, I mean, no, I never said injecting, but wait, no, you just did like, yeah. like three minutes ago. Um, so uh, I asked him, I describe a, a, a scene in the book uh, from a rally right before the 2018 uh, midterm midterms. And I, did an interview with him backstage right before he went on stage. And I, I had come across, it was, it's a, it's a campaign promise. I think we've all forgotten about, but at one point he did say, I promise you, I will always tell the truth. Um, in this is in the 2016 campaign. So I said, now you, you can't say you've kept that promise. Can you, um, and I thought he would push back and say, I'm the most truthful guy in the world or something like that. I'm tremendously truthful. But instead, he said, uh, I, I tell the, uh, yeah, I try. I tell the truth when I can. Um, and um, it was it was just such a, a strange admission, he said. And, you know, it's, it was it was really, and it, it reminded me, um, I, I had a college friend, his name is Scott Alexander, great guy. And he, um, he still was still, still a great friend. And he, he told me once, you know, look, I would never lie to you unless I had to, you know, <laughs> unless I really had to, I would never lie to you. <laughs> Let me ask the flip side of that question. Cause, uh, the, probably the most controversial part of your book has been discussing 
your fellow reporters and the media uh, in the Trump show. Uh, what do you think has been the most unfair part of the media coverage of the Trump presidency as compared to previous administrations? Well, I think there's been a relentless negativity from day one, which um, it, it's almost the tonnage of it as opposed to any specific element of it. It's almost at any point over the last three and a half years, you could tune in um, and uh, to, 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 the, to the news coverage and think, oh my God, look at the outrageous, horrific, unbelievably awful thing he just did. And oh my God, he just did it again. And he just did something even worse. And, and, and it's, I mean, the coverage is, you know, is driven by his own actions and he's given lots and lots of material to drive that coverage. Uh, but there's like no, there's, there's, there, there's no discerning between real scandals and like, trivial scandals. And I, I write, and I bring up this, this Hurricane Dorian thing, which again, I, I was the first person to mention that on network news. And then if you remember, it became a thing. And the president, it really, for some reason, it ate him, ate at him. And, and then it culminated with him drawing the, sh- on, you know, with his Sharpie on the, uh, on the FEMA map to show that the hurricane, the cone of the hurricane, look, look, it really does go to Alabama. Um, and that story dominated news for an entire week. And you would have thought we had just like, you know, invaded uh, inva- Alabama. It, yeah. 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 It, it, it invaded <laughs> Alabama, uh, to, um, uh, to, 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 to seek out weapons of mass destruction or something, you know, um, and you know, look, he's so, so I, I, I do think there's, there is something to that. And he, he has so goaded and insulted, um, people that do what we do, um, both in terms of the personal insults and taunts, the general, you know, ridiculous accusations of enemy of the people and all that. And also blatantly declaring real journalism, fake news that, there's kind of an instinct for all of us to like get in the ring with them and fight them over it. And like, and sometimes I have, by the way, but, um, but, but the overall impression you get is that uh, to all too often that the so-called mainstream news media looks like the opposition party, which is exactly what he likes to call us. How do you, how do you know the difference? I mean, how do you know when to push and when to, to back off? I mean, we, we deal with this a lot with our own work at the dispatch. I mean, this morning's dis- we have our morning dispatch newsletter. Sort of, we try to cover as much as we can without really obsessing on the things that drive a lot of the kind of silly talk in Washington. The the, the personality stuff, the the craziness, the you know finger pointing that nobody's going to remember in a, in a week or in a month. Certainly not in six months, and this morning at, you know, 530 in the morning, as we were putting the thing to bed, it occurred to me that we had not included this discussion of disinfectant and sunlight. And we hit send without including it in this, you know, sort of the daily product that we put out. And on the one hand, I can make an argument. Geez, he said that it's a window into sort of the way he operates. It's a crazy thing. People should see if the president is saying something totally insane. It's part of part of the news. On the other hand, you know, 
this will be something that consumes the, the 24-hour cable channels for the next couple of days. And then it probably does go away because we're not going to inject ourselves with disinfectant. And it's funny <laughs> that Lysol put out a statement, but like, this isn't yeah. real stuff. So how, how do you make that? How do you make that determination or do you just sort of figure it out as you go? Well, what I've tried to do, the, the, the rule that I've tried to um, follow is to focus on what he does more than what he says, which is not really a great rule when you think about it, because obviously the, one of the, the, the main powers of the presidency is, is, the, is the bully. Especially in a what, what you situation say. like this, right? I mean, this is yeah, arguably yeah. when it matters most that the president convey accurate and important information in a timely fashion. I would say that that's probably his main job right now. And he's not doing so what, it. So it's tough. So what I what I tried to focus on uh, during the first month or so, and even now, uh, of these briefings, is I said to myself, I'm going to go in. I want my questions to focus on what the federal government is doing what they're not doing, what they should be doing, and what they have to say about the uh, the developments of, of of this virus and this pandemic, and what people should take to modify their own behaviors based on the information here. So I try to focus on the now and the future, um, and not get into the well. You said two days ago this, and now you're saying this, and but you didn't get this back then, and why didn't you have more of this? And you know, and the the I was like, there's gonna be time enough. There'll be like a 9/11 style commission report, you know, and there'll be a campaign that'll deal with this of like what was done wrong, what should have been done, but that's not important right now. We're in the middle of a, of a crisis, and people don't know what to do and what to make of it, and what what matters is what is what is happening. So that was my kind of approach, and that's why I, you know, I focused my questions on 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 what is happening with the federal response now and and, and the plans going forward, um, and the and the new information, and um, but then he makes it really hard because he like the other day like when he brought a video into the into the briefing room like a campaign style video that talks about how great everything he did has been. And you ha- and then at some point you got to say, well, well no, wait a minute, yeah. dude, this is not, you know, uh, or, or, you know, every briefing is, man, we have done the best job in the world on testing. I mean, we, uh, the testing has just been the better, the best in the whole world. And then you're forced to say, actually, you know, isn't it true X, Y, and Z, but I, I so, so he, he draws you in, but I'll give you another example of, you know, pre-coronavirus. Uh, uh, I I remember the morning that he tweeted about uh, uh, Joe and Mika, and and Mika bleeding from her face. Remember this? Oh yes. Um, and um, I and and people. I, I mean, it was predictable. Like, oh my God, how could he say this? So what I told, uh, you know, my, in, in as far as my voice, you know, matters within ABC, I said, look, I do not think we should cover this at all. This is completely trivial and not important. And by the way, by covering it, you're just further spreading this like insult that he has made against Mika Brzezinski. So why do that? Why don't you just like ignore it, pretend it didn't happen. And let's talk about what's happening, actually happening at the White House today. And people bought it and we weren't going to cover it. And then what happens? The story completely spirals out of my control. The Speaker of the House 
who is, by the way, at that point was a Republican. His name was Paul Ryan. Um, uh, you know, he's having a press conference and he comes out and denounces the president's tweet. I mean, when when the when the Speaker of the House is denouncing the president of the same party, it, it kind of becomes and then like and, and, and everybody else. I mean, it was like every. So we we had to cover it, even though I didn't want to. Well, let me push you on this a little, because the thesis of your book, in some sense, is the Trump show, right? That this is the president's plan to sort of host the largest reality television show in the history of the world. And he has cast reporters, you by name often, as one of the characters in that show, against your will, perhaps. But you're um, now, in particular, one of the villains of the show in a regular character that shows up that he calls cutie pie, wise guy. Uh, you're never going to amount to anything, I think, was one of them. Uh, you're part of the problem. That's all just from like the last two weeks. Um, <laughs> you've been cast in this show. Uh, so how do you cover a president when you're also one of the main characters for him? Uh, I mean, it's and it is it is the world's biggest reality show and it is the way he sees it and that is not you know people say how could you trivialize this and say it's just a show and don't you see the concept well yes i'm talking about his view of this he tracks the ratings the way you would if you had a show uh he sees the ratings are both literally television ratings while he was doing rallies it's the size of his rallies it's it's all of that it's the number of reporters that show up at a press conference he's often amazed like oh my god as if like you know when obama held a press conference no reporter showed up you know <laughs> um uh and, and so he does see it that way he tracks just just like when you've had a show you look at what the critics say he when he's not speaking to the press <clears throat> he is watching uh news coverage he had he told me at one point that TiVo was the greatest invention, you know, one of the greatest inventions uh, in, in history, uh, you know, the early DVR, because now he can watch Fox and be happy. He can watch MSNBC and, and he can watch CNN and get really mad. Uh, he can watch Good Morning America, but he can also check in on the Today Show and on uh, CBS This Morning. He watches them all and it takes a lot of time. None of us here can watch all that television can we i mean and um so <clears throat> so he does see it that way and and i i just think that we just keep focused on the job and um I, I i the taunts don't bother me sometimes i find them kind of funny you know i mean when he said third-rate reporter and you're never gonna make it i had people who i can't believe he said that to you don't you know buck up you're okay you know i think you're really good <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like you know I, I i thought it was kind of entertaining um and it was what, what made me irritated was that he wasn't actually answering my question. And he was suggesting that the question was 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 not legitimate, which it was. It was, again, about testing. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you, uh, we're, we're, we, he, he can have his drama. If, I, if he wants me to be a player in that drama, that's fine. I'm, I'm just going to focus on, on the job of the reporter, which is uh, to try to seek out the truth, ask the questions, and report on what's happening. Well, you know, I... I one of the reasons I think, think this book was so valuable um, is because you've had such long experience with him in a way that most of us haven't. I mean, you open the book, you, uh, you know, telling a story about uh, an interview with that you did with him in the mid 1990s as as uh, when you were a reporter at the New York Post. And f for those of us who are newer 
to the president and to this kind of behavior. It really is shocking. So you've got two decades of looking at this to sort of contextualize it. And the rest of us still don't. I, I remember the first confrontation I had with him was um, in New Hampshire in February of 2015. It was the first big, you know, cattle call uh, at, sponsored by the New Hampshire Republican Party. And everybody came and spoke. Every single candidate came and spoke, including Trump. And, and I was on I was on a panel of journalists talking about sort of journalism and we were clearly filler, right? They had us there just to fill space in between these candidate uh, speeches. And Joe Scarborough was hosting, and Drew Klein, who was then the manager or the, the editorial page editor of the Manchester Union Leader, was on the panel. And we talked about every other candidate. We never talked about Trump. And then we got a question from the audience, and the audience uh, member said, "Hey, you guys haven't talked about Donald Trump. What do you think?" And Scarborough threw the question to me, and I was pretty dismissive. I said, you know, I think the guy's a, a, a conservative of a convenience and a total clown and blah, blah, blah. I didn't, didn't think much <laughs> And he didn't like it. that? <laughs> well, he wasn't. I figured he wouldn't like it and would come back at me, but he wasn't there yet. So, I, you know, and nobody knew how much he responds to every kind of insult. And... He came later that day and he gave a speech. He didn't mention it in the speech. Um, he then the next day, I think it was the the paper, the Manchester Union Leader. You know, they they just had fifteen presidential candidates show up and give speech in in New Hampshire, and their front page story was as much about this uh, panel of journalists because their guy was on it, you know, as anything else. And they picked out this. Uh, this comment that I had made about Trump and I show up at Fox news the next day and Brett bear, or maybe it was a couple days later and Brett bear has, I think it was honestly like a 13 page fax from Trump with his, a, a note scrawled in Sharpie in the top corner. And the note says something. I have this somewhere in my house. Tell Hayes that no clown could have accomplished all of this, you know, and the, and the <laughs> resume, the CV is like written in, in totally Trumpy language, you know, built the most beautiful, tremendous buildings very strongly. <laughs> I mean, it was and, and I, that was the first, you know, that was my first introduction to that. And it was it was so odd to think that a pr potential president, presidential candidate even would care at all what some, you know, <laughs> not prominent reporter would say on a panel of two, like, who cares? I mean, I don't know. And then that was, you know, he became, later became obsessed. I mean, he tried to get me fired from Fox News and he, he, he didn't really become obsessed you, with you, me. You and, you and, you and Crowdhammer. Yeah, Crowdhammer. Like, you, 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 were, you were the favorites. Carl yeah. Rove, Megyn Kelly. He tried to get me fired yeah. at, uh, the next year. It was the next January uh, up in New Hampshire. He took an executive aside and tried to get me fired up there. And then he tried to get me fired on Sean Hannity's show. Um, so the question, <laughs> enough about me. question I, I have, um, which you sort of alluded to, but I want to put you on the spot a little bit. How much of this is a plan? I mean, he, he made this famous comment to Leslie Stahl in which he said, you know, I attack you so that, in effect, I attack you all all the time so that nobody believes you and nobody knows what's true. How much of it is a plan, a strategy? 
to undermine the media so we can say whatever he thinks and people will believe him. People who want to believe him will believe him. And how much of it is just ad hoc, day-to-day combat with you and others in the press corps? Well, I don't think that strategic is a word that you should associate with Donald Trump. He he is, he's not somebody that goes in with a grand master plan. I don't think about anything. And he's been explicit about it. I, um, uh, in, in the book, I, 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 I dug up this interview that he did with Barbara Walters in 1987, which is just yeah. a treasure. Um, and by the way, in the audio book, I, I got permission, which wasn't easy because I had to get not only... ABC's permission, but Barbara Walters' uh-huh. permission uh, to 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 use the clip, so you can actually hear uh, this this remarkable interview. It was about when um, he made his first trip to uh, to New Hampshire. I mean, his first trip in a political context. I don't know if he had been there before, but but uh, uh, in 1987, and spoke at a Rotary Club. Um, I think it was in Concord, um, and. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he, uh, Leslie, St- I mean, the, uh, I'm sorry, Barbara Walters goes with him. They, 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 2020 does a whole segment on him. There's the interviews and it's this total, it's this total like puff piece on, on Donald Trump, the, uh, the young brash entrepreneur. And he goes to New Hampshire and he would have loved this. The, the New York times even wrote about this and, and, and the story, they did a story on it and said that he got larger crowds than Bob Dole and Pat Robertson, <laughs> these other like people that are actually running yeah. and working. Um, and uh, but 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 he um, he has this line which he's used variations of it. He 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 says that you know the prize fighters. There's a there's a phrase. It's you go with the punches. You know you don't go into the ring saying I'm going to do two lefts. I'm going to come with the jab. I'm going to go. Um, you you uh, you know you go with the punches. Um, or as um, what was the Tyson quote on that? Mike Tyson had a quote about everyone's you know, got a plan until they get punched yeah. in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this was pre Mike Tyson, but that's basically the <laughs> nice uh, pull, Sarah. By the way, <laughs> yeah, so really impressive. We, we had it. We had it up in the office at uh, DNA. Nice. nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's good because you guys got punched in the face a few times. <laughs> a I few think. times. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's not strategic. He does he does go with the punches, um, but he, he instinctively knows that undermining the credibility of the press is, 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 is a, uh, is an effective thing for him. And, um, and you know, he, he blurted it out with Leslie Stahl, by the way, there are times that Donald Trump is the most honest politician any of us have ever seen. I mean, a quote like that to Leslie Stahl is an amazingly breathtakingly honest thing to say. I was actually Um, going to quote back to you something that, uh, uh, you recommend to read which uh, here's the famous quote from it. And I think you'll know immediately what I'm referring to. The great enemy of clear language is insincerity. When there is a gap between one's real and one's declared aim, one turns as it were instinctively to long words and exhausted idioms, like a cuttlefish spurting out ink, Uh, dot, dot, dot for a little while. But political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. I guess <laughs> that's awesome. George Orwell, Politics of the English Language. It's your favorite, right? Everybody needs to read yeah. that and reread yeah. it. So uh, compared to it is the least Orwellian piece of writing you will ever read. By the way, <laughs> well, that's sort of the point, right? He, yes. His other writing is what I don't know illuminates <laughs> this or something. Yeah. Uh, but you've covered all these presidents. Uh, 
how do you, <laughs> I feel like Orwell is describing what was occurring in increasing amounts during Clinton, Bush, Obama, et cetera. And then you get to Trump and you hit this wall. And now Orwell's, that section in particular to me takes on a totally different meaning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he's, he's all out there and he's unbelievably transparent. I mean, we know more about, I, I feel like I, I know what's going inside his head. Maybe that means that it's time for me to move on to something else. But uh, <laughs> but even like the most shocking and surprising things, oh my God, look what he just did. It's like, it kind of makes yeah. sense, you know? Um, and uh, it's, he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't speak the way politicians speak. Um, and, and, and that, that that's, a, that's a great point, Sarah. It's just that, that, how would, how would Orwell, like, uh, how would he amend that essay uh, to, to explain Trump? I'm going well, to have to think a reporter, on that. You, I, as a reporter, for decades, there were complaints about the euphemism and the, you know, right? The gaffe in Washington is accidentally saying something true. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the now, Kinsleyan gaffe, and he and 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 Trump is a walking Kinsleyan uh, gaffe. And so, how do you cover that? How do you change what you've learned to do for decades, and and compare it to past presidents when it's a total shift? It's everything. Everything is different uh, about about covering him, and and you end up. I mean, you know, uh, the the you know fact checking has become like it's become like the central part of the job, which is strange. It's always, you always do fact checks, but like, I mean, in, in reality, all those previous presidents you mentioned worked very hard to not say things that were outright lies, even when they wanted to, even when, even that when was they the wanted point to of spin, of, right? This, yeah, you you, yeah, say, yeah. you talk around this thing you don't want to say forever. And Trump as often as not just says the thing. Right? I mean, that's just says it. Just put it out. I mean, I think of like, remember the, uh, uh, you know, Bush's um, uh, address to, to Congress uh, and, and, and the, was it 16 words yeah. uh, about uh, about Saddam Hussein? Yep. You know, the British British intelligence uh, says Saddam Hussein tried to get uh, by uh, uranium in Niger. Is that roughly yep. what it was? Yep. Almost exactly. I mean, I'm sure you have those Almost words exactly, like, yeah. memorized. Yes. <laughs> He's got a tattoo um, actually somewhere if you look for it. <laughs> and 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 that and that you know the, the, that statement by the way is actually correct. I mean, the Br- British intelligence did find that, but what was the, the scandal was that U.S. intelligence thought it was you know not 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 reliable. And uh, you know, Condoleezza Rice gets dragged before Congress about it. It like it it, it consumes Washington for weeks on end. It's like, I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Um, well, take the Obama years. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. Yeah. That's something. I mean, I remember some of your greatest hits, if you will. Are you and yes. Jay Carney going back and forth on the Obamacare website? If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. Um, that's if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. He said at one point. Those those yeah. were those were not those were not lies. Those were false promises. He promised something and then did not deliver on it. It was wrong. It was, it was so, you know, I guess how you want to put it, but it was, it was the, uh, PolitiFact called that the lie of the year. Eventually. Right? Right. Um, First they validated it and then they later called it the lie of the year. <laughs> Look, I mean, yeah. this is, there's, there's a reason, and I know we, we got to wrap up and let you go here, but there's a reason that Trump has been so effective in separating sort of center right voters 
from the media. I mean, there, there was a, there's been a long skepticism that conservatives have had of the mainstream media, of course. Forever. Yeah. Um, I think it's well-deserved, frankly. Um, obviously, talk radio made it the sort of the centerpiece of the existence of that medium was to say, in effect, you can't believe these guys, so come believe us. And, you know, for a long time, I thought that was, a, they played that role pretty effectively, even if they were sometimes over the top in the, in the criticism. But there, there are reasons that conservatives, I mean, conservatives, you know, who are non-Trump fans like me, are skeptical of the media, have been skeptical of the media for a long time. And I think, you know, present company accepted, you watch the press briefings during the Obama years, and there was a lot more rolling over. Now, the, the pace, the cadence of the lies probably wasn't as fast. But I mean, the president said things that were manifestly and demonstrably untrue. And you didn't get a three-day press swarm about this. I remember covering, uh, you know, covering what he was doing with the the detainees in Guantanamo. And I I think that was a minor scandal in and of itself. I mean, he basically set up his own separate commission and uh, replaced the military and intelligence professionals who had been making these assessments and gave priority to human rights lawyers and the people that Obama wanted to hear from. That's the kind of thing that under George W. Bush would have been a scandal. People would have been really frustrated with that. But when Obama was asked about you know, what was happening and what he was doing, transferring some of these really, really bad characters that we had in in Guantanamo, on whom we had significant intelligence of their, not only their bad intentions, but bad actions. And he said, yeah, you know, we're going to trans- transfer a handful of, you know, sort of bad guys, not, not really that bad. It was just totally false. Like what he said was just 100% wrong. Now, maybe he just didn't know the details of these things, but what he was doing was was saying something that was provably incorrect. And it just got so little fanfare. It was the kind of thing, of course, that conservative media then dined out on for several days. Right. I think it was those moments, again, not as frequent as, as we're experiencing under Trump, but where there was this obvious chasm between the way that the sort of center-right world saw Obama and how he was covered and, and the way that the, the press treated Obama. He was treated with a sort of an automatic benefit of the doubt that I don't think George W. Bush got, and obviously Donald Trump um, isn't getting. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, it's a, I think it's a little overstated um, in that... Um, the White House press corps really had a actually had a had a pretty tense relationship with the uh, with the Obama White House, yeah. um, and 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 Obama sought to avoid us at all costs. I mean, if you look at uh, I, I I remember this is one of the astounding facts, and it might have changed in the last. I, I don't know. I don't know if it if it changed towards the end because I, I didn't I didn't keep tracking it, but Peter Baker who is, you know, probably the, you know, the best guy on the beat right now. And he's, and he's, you know, he's, he's written, he's written books about, uh, you know, about Bush and Obama and he's been, he's, he's really, he's a, he's a fantastic New York times. Yeah. yeah he's a great reporter. Um, Peter Baker told me, um, towards the end of Obama's second term that he had never had the opportunity to ask President Obama a question in, a, in, a, in an on the record setting. I don't know if he'd had any interactions beyond, but but mm. never, never for his reporting, never been able to. He'd never been called on in an Obama press conference. Uh, Obama had never uh, agreed to do an interview with him. 
I never got an interview with Obama. Um, most White House reporters did not get interviews with him. He did he did infrequent press conferences, and when he did the press conferences, because largely because his answers were so long, as you remember, yeah. it, it would often be like five or six reporters that got called on. Yeah. So, um, you know, I I did have several chances myself to ask him questions in these press conferences, but you know, but I just I blew me away that you know a guy that is like who you know maybe the most important reporter on the beat um and not like a a right-wing anti-obama he's, he's the new york times guy you know couldn't couldn't get a question with him and and um and i think the reason why so so he he tried uh, and all presidents have done this to a degree in recent you know all recent presidents have done this to to go out outside bypass the mainstream media so he did you know between two firms uh, the pimp with a limp in in Philadelphia. He did all the these cereal bowl, and all these bathtub interviews. lady. Yeah, the the, the 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 lady that was with the was was it Fruit of the Loop, uh, yes, Fruit Loops, yes. or was it? Uh, yeah, um, or Apple Jacks. I forget. It was one of those. Um, and um, uh, and and I remember that there was there was a convergence of kind of like scandals in the second term. The IRS targeting of conservative groups. Um, the, uh, the FBI, uh, targeting journalists, putting AP, uh, yep. in their leak investigation, something that Sarah was secretly applauding, I think somewhere in her, um, <laughs> um, and, uh, um, take offense, sir. <laughs> uh, and what was the third Benghazi one? Stuff. Uh, but yeah, maybe I think this was not during the Benghazi, but there was, so there was this convergence of these stories and, um, and I remember, uh, uh, a, uh, Obama dropped in. There had been a like a little gathering of reporters with Dennis McDonough um, in the chief of staff's office. At the end of the day, it was like a Friday or something. And this happened. Sometimes this happened with you know Mulvaney did this stuff, uh, but John Kelly did it. Um, it's ha- you know this happens at the White House. So the chief of staff brings the, the the press on hand to come back and just you know just talk. And Obama dropped by. Like unscheduled drop by. It was definitely a plan. This was strategic, <laughs> and he just he just ripped us for. He just went on this little tirade about um, you guys. These these stories are bullshit. You know it's bullshit. You know, you're focusing on the trivial. You're da 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 da. Um, now I'm not saying his criticisms were justified at all, but um, but the the point of it is I I I don't think that that Obama really got a free pass from those uh, that that were that were covering him. I mean, maybe that certainly that the general I agree with you on the general tone, night and day between Bush and Obama and Obama and and Trump, no question. But but it wasn't that uh, that, that the people that were in there covering him day to day, you know, ignored the stuff. I think I think that he was pressed pretty hard. Well, Jonathan, before we let you get back to covering this White House and raising a brand new puppy at home, we have some lightning round questions for you. Oh, my goodness. Lightning round. Okay. You ready? Yes. Interview that's on your bucket list. Bob Dylan. (laughs) Job you would do if you couldn't do this one. Professional baseball player is not in there, right? <laughs> I thought you'd be the Nats manager. I thought yeah, ma- manager of the Washington Nationals, or, or I'd like to play too, though. I mean, you know, but yeah, but a manager would be fine. Uh, okay, this was a question that we did earlier on our uh, podcast with all the guys. Um, musical album that brings you the most joy, start to finish. Um, probably uh, Blood on the Tracks. <laughs> sounds and sounds joyous. 
(laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) Uh, Best piece of advice you ever got? Um... Uh, probably don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> Hence why you think you can be a major league baseball player. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. We love the book front row at the Trump show. Amazon was sold out, but it is now back to available also at your local bookstores. And, uh, what, I don't know what questions do you have today for the president, Jonathan, any parting thoughts? Uh, I'm actually not going to be in the briefing today, so I will, I will watch at home. I, I might try to follow up if I were there, I, 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 especially cause I know you guys didn't cover it. I want to, I want to get it in the next uh, dispatch <laughs> daily. Um, you know, what do we think? I, I, I kind of think Purell would be, would be the stuff I was, if I was going to inject something. Purell in our yeah, brain. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, listeners. And again, subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, wherever you're getting your podcast from, and join us at thedispatch.com.